to judge or not to judge? That seems to be an important question these days, doesn't it? As we continue to learn from the Sermon on the Mount, let's see what Jesus has to say about this tricky issue of judgment. We have arrived at chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, where our master teacher says this, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet, and turn, and tear you to pieces. I can remember when tolerance became the number one value in modern culture. Twenty years ago, the world demanded that we all be more and more permissive. Later, tolerance was no longer enough. Now affirmation and celebration are required. But the latest buzzword you may have heard is inclusiveness. It would seem that nothing could be more praiseworthy than efforts to be inclusive. Yes, the people and organizations who are the most inclusive should be praised and rewarded, says the world. Conversely, Nothing is to be more hated than exclusiveness. Of course, the reason for all of this is that Satan hates the church of Jesus Christ. Our adversary will do anything he can to destroy the church and her potential to influence the culture back toward God's truth. He seeks to stop us before we can start, to invalidate us by our very definition in the minds of people. It is no coincidence that the world's highest value is one we absolutely cannot embrace. This is the design of our enemy. But someone may ask, why can we not seek to be more tolerant, more affirming, or more inclusive? Why is this not even one of our core values at Go Church? Well, for one reason, because the very truth we are called to proclaim is that salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ. We are commissioned to tell the world that heaven and eternal life come exclusively by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And worse, that those who reject or ignore him are on their way to eternal judgment in a place of torment called hell. I'm fairly sure that the message we are commanded to proclaim to the world is utterly exclusive. Yet Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. One of the interesting things that happens today is that the enemies of God do their best to use his own book against him. 
And one of their favorite ideas to twist and exploit comes from the text we are studying this morning. We are looking at one of the most misinterpreted and incorrectly applied sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. For that reason, I'm going to spend as much time on what this teaching does not mean as I do on what it does mean. So first of all, let's talk about what Jesus does not teach in this passage. Let's consider the historical context and remember the makeup of the original audience seated there on that Palestinian hillside. Jesus was surrounded by his closest disciples. Remember, they drew near. But the larger crowd consisted of several groups from working class civilians looking for hope to zealots who were like a militia ready to attack the Roman government to the Sadducees who were basically Jewish politicians to the Pharisees who were highly um, devoted religious scholars. Do you remember from previously in this series, which of these groups was trying to get everyone to be perfect? One of these groups believed that the Roman occupation was the judgment of God on the people due to their failure to keep God's law well enough. They believed their calling in life was to live as perfectly as they could while also using every possible method, including judgmental manipulation, to get everybody else to follow God's law well enough for things to change. I'm talking about the Pharisees, the legalists. They were the ones Jesus must have been thinking about most when he made this statement about not judging others. You are blind guides judging blindness, says Jesus basically in another place to the Pharisees. Judge not lest you be judged. So at this point in his sermon, was Jesus making a universal statement for all people in all times that all types of judgment are wrong? Well, if so, we have some real problems. For one thing, there are many other verses of Scripture that teach us when and how to judge, particularly in the church. Secondly, if Jesus is making a universal case against judgment, then every criminal justice system on earth is anti-biblical. And yet in Romans 13, the Bible says human governments are an agent of God. Thirdly, if Jesus was making that kind of blanket statement, why did he also give instructions about how to judge when you judge, even in the same paragraph? Jesus says, get the log out of your eye first, then go and help out your brother with his or her speck. He actually gives instructions about the way that we should judge when we judge. There are actually many verses in the New Testament warning against certain types of judgment. Romans 2, James 4, and others. But there are also plenty of passages that absolutely lead us to judge in certain circumstances and in certain ways. 1 Corinthians 5, Ephesians 5, and others. That's why this is a complicated issue that's going to require some explanation. First, it helps to understand that there is more than one Greek word translated into our English word, judge. And these words have subtle differences in meaning that can help us shed light on some of those passages I mentioned that said, the word Jesus uses here is the most generic and most often used of these words. Jesus uses the general word, krino, in the Greek. In fact, one of the difficulties in interpreting this passage is that krino is such a broad term. 
This word can simply mean to decide. Or it can mean to condemn. And it can mean just about everything in between. The fact is that our English word for judge is also very broad in scope, isn't it? I can use good judgment in buying a car or I can pronounce judgment on a murderer. I can judge the distance on a golf shot or I can judge a terrorist to be worthy of death. I can make a judgment call or I can pronounce judgment. I can be overly judgmental or I can judge rightly. That's a pretty broad range of meaning, but in our use of the word, what we mean by it can usually be seen in the larger context of the discussion. The same is true for Jesus' use of this word. Context will tell us what he means. So which kind of judgment is Jesus speaking against? Is he commanding us to turn a blind eye to the sinful attitude or actions of a friend? To, to stick our head in the sand like an ostrich? Or is, is he saying we should stop short of condemning that person to everlasting fire for their slip up? What is it that we're really supposed to get from these words? Generally, it seems to me that Jesus is telling us how not to judge. How not to judge, which can be seen in the opening of the second sentence, for in the way that you judge. From this, we can see that Jesus is warning us not to judge in the wrong way, even though we will inevitably need to make judgments about people. But overreaction to the first sentence in this teaching, coupled with the fact that it comes from the lips of Jesus himself, has absolutely been used to remove just about any type of judgment from modern Christianity. And this has severely weakened the church. We are often not what we should be, partly because of an overzealous application of this verse. Conversely, churches who are too judgmental and or judge in the wrong way about the wrong things need to tune in to what Jesus actually was trying to teach here. So what about us? What about our church? I would say that we are working on it. <laughs> but generally speaking, mainstream, growing churches like our own typically err on the side of making no judgments for fear of appearing to be judgmental. What does this cost us? It costs us true accountability, which in turn robs us of authentic biblical community. And if you don't remember anything else I say today, remember this, accountability is the most potent attribute of community. Accountability is the most potent attribute of community. Without accountability, fellowship is impotence. And listen, without the right kind of judgment, there can be no accountability. The church today has largely neutered itself of this most powerful aspect of biblical fellowship. And I honestly believe that the biggest reason for the sterilization of Christ-like judgment from the church is a widespread misinterpretation of these very words right here, spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Ideas have consequences. What we teach each other changes who we are for better or worse. These words of Jesus have been misused until we are keeping the light from shining in the darkness. After all, who am I to judge? So again, looking first at what Jesus did not teach. Let's look at this in two arenas. First, Jesus did not teach tolerance of sin in the church family. 
He did not teach that. Friends, just as we need to learn when to refrain from speaking, we also need to learn when and how to speak the truth. The Bible says, dear brothers and sisters, so he's talking to a church. If another Christian is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Notice that when to speak is when you are godly. Did you catch that? Is it possible for anyone to be godly? Yes, it is. Paul says, you who are godly should do this. So if you're not sure that you're right with God, you should probably keep your mouth shut. But if you're walking with Jesus and you know that one of your spiritual brothers or sisters is overcome by some sin, you should care enough to do something. Now, let me also emphasize that we're not talking about when there's something about this person that rubs you the wrong way. But when this person is truly overcome by some sin, and if you are godly and the brother or sister is truly overcome by sin, then the way to speak is how? Gently and humbly and with a heart that really does want to help. In order to help, as it says, the person back onto the right path. The point is that living and letting live or never saying anything to challenge each other is about as far from the biblical idea of church as you can get. Often we're afraid of being judgmental. So we say nothing. We just let everything go. This is not what Jesus was saying, as is clear in what the Spirit inspires Paul to say here in Galatians, as we just read, that those who are godly should help those who are sinning back onto the right path. But we tend to prefer to do nothing about sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. In fact, we might approach each other about a lot of things, but the last thing we're going to approach each other about is sin. We got it all wrong. If, if it isn't ongoing sin that might overcome the other person, you probably ought to just let it go. Difference of opinion? Let it go. Personality clash? Let it go. But if we're talking about sin, and particularly overcoming or ongoing sin, then you ought to use the biblical formula for confronting that sin. What's the biblical formula? Besides the one we're looking at today, we talked in detail about uh, the one Jesus gives us told us what to do, instructions found in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. You can look that up. I can't go back through all that again today, but the point is that there is a way to do this, and it starts with one person who is godly, privately and quietly, seeking to restore another person who is overcome by sin. Yes, Jesus started this passage off by saying, judge not lest you be judged. But just in case you still don't think there is a right way to judge sin within the church, let me read you what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Can you imagine? In a church? And of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you were proud. See, they were proud because of their tolerance. You see, their, their grace. As if they got points for making no judgment about it. This is not a new thing. Paul continues, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief 
and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I have already, uh-oh, passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. By the way, Paul is functioning here as the chief overseer or pastor of this church, which he also planted. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. Yikes. That doesn't fit in with anything most people think should be happening in the church today, does it? Does it? So, which way of thinking is wrong? Our modern tendency to tolerate sin in the church or what the Bible actually teaches? They can't both be right. As I said before, accountability is the most potent attribute of community. There is no accountability without a commitment to judge between that which is sin and that which is not sin. Maybe some of you are unconvinced. You still think we should never actually confront sin in the church, that Jesus said not to judge, so we should never judge anything in any way. Well, let me give you a few more verses. The church in Corinth was being eaten up from the inside. The yeast was taking over. That's never happening in any churches today. That's, that was sarcasm. So Paul said this, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or swindlers or idol worshipers. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. What I meant was that you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worship idols or is abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. That's tough stuff, isn't it? How does this fit with judge not lest you be judged? It doesn't fit at all. But that's because we're quoting Jesus out of context. And quoting people out of context often shows a lack of integrity. Remember that. We do need to understand that Paul is talking about Christians who are caught up in a lifestyle of these ongoing sinful behaviors. That is, those who are, as it says, overcome by sin. Not those who are repentant or who are actively fighting a battle to have victory over areas of sin and temptation. Also remember, we're to seek to gently and humbly restore those who are overcome by sin. In all these places, Paul is talking about our posture toward those who continue to sin belligerently and with no effort to repent. This kind of habitual, uh, continual, in God's face, Lifestyle sin is not to be tolerated within the church family. So we must understand when Jesus said not to judge, he was not advocating tolerance or permissiveness of ongoing unrepentant sin in his church. And we'll get to what he was saying shortly. But secondly, neither was Jesus advocating tolerance of sin in the world. Just a few moments after Jesus preached the oft-quoted words, judge not lest you be judged, he said this, same chapter, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is, by the way they act. 
Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Now, either Jesus contradicts himself just a few verses after today's text, or many have misunderstood what he meant when he told us not to judge other people. Because most folks would say it's pretty judgmental to think about and to attempt to determine whether or not a person is good or bad. Wouldn't they? Who am I to judge if that person is a good or a bad tree, right? Isn't that what most of us have come to believe? In fact, today we're constantly told that really everyone is good. But that is a lie from Satan. They're all good trees, bless their hearts. How could you ever say that someone's a bad tree? Besides, if there's anything that is, quote, quote, bad, it isn't their fault. Something must have happened to make them that way. So just let it go. We should be tolerant and inclusive. And who are you to say what's good and what's bad anyway? Even your own Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Sound familiar? But this same Jesus also says, beware. Another translation says, be on the lookout. He says, listen, you can identify people by their actions. By what actions? By either their good works or their sin. Jesus says, take note and make some determinations about whether or not someone is a good influence or a bad influence. And beware of those who are actually on their way to the fire. Yes, you'll find that you actually need to make judgments about people so that you are not fooled, among other things. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, rebuke and expose them. Oh my. Rebuke? Expose? Is that different from tolerate and affirm? Okay. But what is it that we're to rebuke and expose? Expose. We're talking about the deeds of evil and darkness. And this particular verse, I believe, applies to what we see in the world more than it applies to nitpicking against our brothers and sisters who are at least trying to follow God. Here in Ephesians, Paul is talking about belligerent, ongoing, obviously evil activity, the work of the enemies of God. He's not talking about debatable practices like whether or not to watch TV or or, or, or uh, you know, where to draw the line on clothing. No, this is a call to rebuke and expose blatant acts of disobedience against what God has clearly commanded to stand against the sinfulness of a world lost and in need of a Savior. Amen. It's called to speak out for truths, not about your opinions on the role of government or economics. It's not about disputable matters, not about someone's personality that rubs you the wrong way or their views on the latest debatable topic. You're not called to rebuke or expose people you simply disagree with, but rather to rebuke and expose evil and darkness that is sinful behavior. We're to rebuke the worthless deeds of evil and expose the darkness of sin. Notice that it's the sin that we're to call out more than those who practice that sin. Look at it. It says we're to rebuke and expose their deeds. 
their deeds. Now, if a person determines to be so defined by his or her evil deeds that it's impossible to rebuke or expose the sin without he or she taking it personally, that's not something we can control. But the Bible says that deeds of evil and darkness need to be rebuked and exposed by true Christians. This whole idea goes back to what Jesus said a few verses earlier about being the light of the world. Let me go ahead and apply this right now because I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm going to apply this right now by exposing one particular sin that is constantly thrown in our faces today. I'll obey this text we just read by utterly rebuking the idea that any person gets to choose their own gender or to choose not to identify as a gender at all. This modern practice is 100% sinful rebellion against God as can be seen for one example in Genesis 1:27, where we're told that God made us men and women, male and female, and I'm pretty sure he made us the way he wanted to make us. To rebel against such a fundamental facet of our God-given identity is to rebel against God. Those who are saying this is okay and celebrating those who choose to do it are affirming and tolerating sin against God. In fact, I blame society. Even more than the individual has been told since childhood that this is a wonderful thing to do. In many cases, nobody even told them that God's not okay with it. More and more churches even are saying this is okay. But as unpopular as it makes me, let it be clear that this church stands against the greatest deception of our time. Again, Jesus was not teaching tolerance of sin in the world. But now I cannot help but feel concerned that some of you will forget all of the rest of this message and spend the next three hours blowing up all over social media by ranting about the sins of the world. Social media is often a power tool in the hands of babies who would never speak the truth to the face of any real person. And folks, power tools and babies don't mix. So if calling out sin on social media or other impersonal places is really easy for you, you may need to listen very carefully to other parts of this message. Besides that, what good will it do to rail against sin after you've offended your way down to three friends who actually still read your posts? (laughs) And yet, even though I'm concerned that you won't do this in the right way, I meant what I said, that we do need to find a way to speak the truth in love to a world that has lost its moral compass. This is one of the roles of the church. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. But it's one of the roles of the church. We're not to hide the truth away, cowering in fear, but to rebuke and expose. That's why I cannot acquiesce to those who ask me to simply avoid the hard stuff. We agree with you, Pastor, but could you just not go there? They want to bring their friends and not have them offended by the truth on hot-button issues. One of the problems with that is that people cannot understand their need for God and for the gospel until they understand that they have sinned against a holy God as have we all. And yet, even as I have been firm, I must also remember that I will be judged in the same way that I judge and by the same measure. This tells me that I should move quickly to grace and be as loving and gentle as possible, even when I feel I must call out the sin of the world. God knows my heart. 
God knows my heart. He knows that it is not filled with hatred toward people who have believed lies and try to change their gender. I do not hate them. I do not want them to face God's wrath. But to come to repentance and faith in Jesus, I choose love for them, which means I cannot lie to them. They get enough of that. No, my hatred is reserved for the sin and the deceiver who has convinced everyone that it's okay when it's certainly not okay. They, will, they may well hate me for my view and for speaking it, but I most certainly do not hate them. Moving on. So far, I have mostly tried to explain what Jesus did not mean when he said, judge not. He did not mean to teach his disciples to refrain from all forms of judgment. There's a kind of judgment we must practice in the church, and there's a kind of judgment we must practice in the world. But now it's time to get into what Jesus really did want to teach us with these words. When I see you in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, is an accountability process and a warning. First of all, the accountability process. I see in these words of Jesus three steps toward creating a community of authentic accountability. Step one, kill the critic. Kill what critic? The one within you. Oh. Steve Martin once said, before you criticize a man, walk a mile in his shoes. That way, when you do criticize him, you'll be a mile away and have his shoes. In this passage, I believe Jesus was mostly calling his disciples to put an end to the critical spirit which had been exemplified and encouraged by the religious leaders of that day. A critical spirit is absolutely a costly vice. There have always been people who lived to criticize. During the first century, it was no different. In Jewish circles, the Pharisees basically led everyone who aspired to spirituality to be as critical of others as possible. The more fault they could find, the more spiritual they must be. There have always been those who charge up their own self-image by finding faults in others. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And he's speaking to that crowd. Don't be judgmental as a person, says Jesus. Don't be like the Pharisees always finding fault, never giving someone the benefit of the doubt. Well, there's plenty of that in Christianity today as well. This is actually the first step toward a greater goal, which is true accountability. To gain true accountability with others, you must first kill the critic within you. Why? Because if your default mode is to be critical or condemning or judgmental as a person, two things will happen. First, eventually you won't be taken seriously. And second, nobody will ever hold you accountable for your own behavior. They'll be too afraid of your counterattack, see? They see, they see how you are. The best way to keep from ever being held accountable is to be judgmental and condemning as a person. Being critical becomes a safety mechanism. It's like if you stay on offense, you won't have to play defense. People know that you're going to give it right back to them and worse. And they also have already seen that you can be harsher and meaner than they can. It becomes unlikely that they will hold you accountable. The broader fact here is that accountability thrives in an atmosphere of love, not criticism. See, there's a huge difference between judging when absolutely necessary and being judgmental as a person. Some people are judgmental or condemning by nature. 
Sadly, all of us are probably judgmental at certain times or over certain pet issues or peeves. Where you fall on the judgmental spectrum might be related to your maturity level or your current circumstances or related to the specific issue at hand or possibly dependent upon how recently you've been humbled. Have you ever found yourself on a set of critical train tracks and you just can't seem to jump those rails? Why do we do this? Sometimes we criticize others to keep from recognizing our own problems, to set up a smokescreen, to keep from seeing or letting others see the log in our own eyes. Jesus says, stop that. Turn off the judgmental default mode or kill that critical spirit so that eventually you can actually be seen as a person who wants to help build people up instead of tearing them down. I mentioned the Greek word translated here into our English word judge. It's the word krino. Interestingly, when you look at the etymology of this word, you find that it's the source of our word critic. Isn't that something? It's not a terrible stretch to translate this verse, criticize not lest you be criticized. Listen, folks, this idea of a critical spirit, a condemning judgmental attitude is exactly what Jesus was talking about. We need to avoid creating an atmosphere of criticism toward each other and toward leaders. Is it even possible Jesus was wishing they would stop judging him so harshly? Give him a chance. Regardless, we need to stop finding so much fault with each other, and especially with leaders in the Christian community. If you have a critical spirit within, kill it. This is step one in the accountability process. Until we do something about our judgmental, condemning, critical spirits, we're not going to have healthy accountability. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, judge not, lest you be judged. One more verse on this. The Bible says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Let me encourage you, let every single disputable matter go. Every single one. Ruthlessly eliminate your own critical spirit. Until this is done, you cannot move to step two in this process for accountability that Jesus gives us. And by the way, step two is even harder than step one. Step two is to judge yourself. Judge yourself. If you're going to become a person who judges sin in others rightly and not unbiblically, you're going to need to judge yourself first. Let's review what Jesus said from verse 3. Why do you look at that speck? All I can see is your speck. It's just jumping out at me. You've got such a horrible speck. That's in your brother's eye. But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye? And behold... The log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let me tell you what Jesus had in mind. I need a volunteer. Okay, David. (laughs) I think you got a speck there, buddy. Let me see if I can get it out. I'm coming in. That's exactly what it looks like in Jesus' illustration. This is you. Oh, David, you're having a, you got a problem. Man, I saw you looking at that other woman. Let me see if I can talk to you about lust. And I'm like totally wrapped up in pornography. That's what Jesus is talking about. Thank you, David. Glad I didn't hit you in the face, but I figured if I did hit you in the face, you were tough enough to take it. Wasn't sure about others. But that's how silly we look sometimes. 
in the church. However, as stupid as we look when we do that, what are we supposed to do differently? Notice it doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, well, you got a log in your eye, so you can't do anything. No, he says, get the log out. And help your brother with his speck. So the idea is to always examine yourself first. Don't miss this. Judge yourself first before trying to make appropriate judgments about others. Is there a log in your eye? Sometimes that log might even be a critical spirit. And you'd need to go back to step one. Other times you may have ongoing sin in your life that disqualifies you from seeing clearly. But the point of this second step is to get that big ugly thing out of your eye so you can see. And listen, getting that log out of your eye might take a while. This is ultimately about growing spiritually until you could actually help somebody. Where are you in your walk with Christ, really? Have you arrived at some level of spiritual maturity, or are you really just a big fat baby trying to use power tools? Have you let Jesus whittle your log down to a speck? Or do you still have a huge piece of wood sticking out of your face? Generally speaking, those who are farther along in the journey of becoming like Christ should help those who are not as far along and not the opposite. Those with only a speck should be helping those with logs, my friends. It's absolutely a New Testament principle that those who are strong should help those who are weak. But often we get it the other way around. People criticize the strong to feel better about their weakness. It's also true that many people are not as far along spiritually as they think they are, and that's why you might need someone with a speck to help you see your log. We should take note that Timothy did not go around correcting Paul. Paul corrected Timothy. Paul and Peter corrected each other. Now, this is not an absolute, and I don't think we can totally define where a person is on the journey, and sometimes leadership titles uh, or positions mean nothing about spiritual maturity. But as a general rule, if you're still learning to crawl, don't judge the one who's running, even if he trips. I'd like to say that to a lot of people who criticize a man of God like Rick Warren. Anybody comes in, seems a little pharisaical to me, I just start talking about Rick Warren. They're gone. <laughs> Works every time. Not sure uh, anybody can tell me how he's sinning. No, they criticize him for his preaching style, how many translations of scripture he uses in his sermon. They don't like his viewpoint, or they presume some doctrinal error without even knowing all the details. Or most often, they judge him on a quote taken out of context without giving him a chance to explain. And they condemn this man who's probably advanced the kingdom of God on earth as much or more than anyone in several generations. Don't believe anything you read on the internet about a person, by the way. If I get up to heaven someday and find out I'm wrong and he, he's not a hero, I'd rather be, on, on, be wrong in that direction. <laughs> not saying I agree with everything, whatever. See, here I go. <laughs> but again, a big idea here is to judge yourself first. One older commentary on Scripture put it this way. He only is fit to be a reprover, reprover of others who jealously and severely judges himself. Such persons will not only be slow to undertake the office of censor on their neighbors, but when constrained in faithfulness to deal with them, will make it evident that they do it with reluctance and not satisfaction with moderation and not exaggeration, with love and not 
harshness. He only is fit to be a reprover of others who jealously and severely judges himself. Now, if after you judge yourself, you find that you have a pretty big problem uh, or two of your own, then Jesus would say you're not yet in the position to rightly judge the sin of someone else. In other words, stop it. Let someone else in the church bear that responsibility until you get the log out of your eye. The Bible also says, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. This is a similarly misunderstood passage. In his letter to the Romans, Paul's not saying nobody should ever judge anyone else, but that if you're doing the same or similar things as the person you're judging, then obviously you're also condemning yourself and you might want to stop doing that. But Paul also knew that not everyone is sinning in the same way as someone else. And so if you don't have a log in your own eye, you may indeed be called upon to make judgments about the situation, just as Paul himself often did. He was not doing the same things when he judged others, and therefore it's not an error to call them out. In fact, if it's wrong to ever judge, Paul could not have even judged that some in the Roman church were judging incorrectly. The idea is that those who have judged themselves and removed the law can now see to help others with their problems. If you're not caught up in similar sin, then it may be possible for you to rightly judge the sin of someone else. And that is important if there's ever going to be any accountability in the church. Judge yourself rightly so that you can get the log out, so that you can make accurate judgments in order to help others get the sin out of their lives. It takes us to step three which gets to the heart of the matter, that being restoration. Friend, if your motive is not to restore the other person, then you need to go back to step one and say nothing in the meantime. You have a judgmental spirit, and Jesus said it needs to die. That's why you need to step one and step two. But if you've gotten through those steps, then you're compelled by Christ to move on to step three. You must now, here's step three, attempt surgery. Step one, kill the critic. Step two, judge yourself. Step three, attempt surgery. Here's where it gets real. Hopefully you can see how this, it's a process toward the goal of authentic accountability in a church. Jesus told us we should help the other person with their speck after we remove our log. In fact, I would say it's the person who once had the log who can help the person with the speck best. Something's lost in our translation here. In the original language, the speck is of the same substance as the log. That's why some translations say speck of sawdust, or others say splinter. In the Greek, the idea is that this speck or splinter is actually a tiny piece of the bigger log. So there's some indication that these sins are of the same ilk. It's even quite possible that the person with the splinter has been whittling down what was once a log, you see. And so they have some idea how to help the other brother or sister do the same. I'm saying that the person who has experienced victory over an addiction to alcohol is probably the best one to approach. A brother or sister who appears to be struggling with that sin. The person who's gone through the pain of adultery may be the best person to rein in a friend who's dabbling in an unhealthy relationship. You can see it. People who have overcome one kind of sexual immorality or another may be able to help others seeking deliverance. I think that's also the reason Paul says in Galatians 6, but when you do try to help, be careful that you do not fall into the same sin. 
I do believe your, your area of greatest pain, maybe even your greatest failure, can become the area of your greatest ministry. It's risky, but faith always is. So here's the big point. Once you get the log out, start helping people with splinters. Remember that, uh, that old game? Remember how hard it is? I mean, which one was the hardest one? I think it was the, maybe the funny bone or something. The wishbone was tough, you know? And, you're, you know, I mean, this is easy compared to helping people with their sin. But think about the care that you take, you know? Don't touch the sides. What was the other thing that they used to say in the commercials? It takes a steady hand. Remember? I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I'm going to try really hard. Be careful. You know, I mean, then this is just a game. Can you imagine actually trying to be the, a, a, a surgeon? I mean... You know, they, they wash their hands like a hundred times, right, before the surgery. And then they put the gloves on and they wash them, you know, ten more times. They're, they're so careful. One slip of the hand, in some cases, and the patient is paralyzed or a vegetable or, or dead. Yikes. And that's pressure. Well, folks, we need to approach spiritual surgery with the same kind of fear and trembling. You need to pray as much about spiritual surgery on a friend as you would pray if you were being called upon to try to remove his or her appendix. See what I'm saying? Handle spiritual surgery with care and precision. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, said, Correct your brother not as a foe nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician provides medicines. Yes, and even more, as a loving brother anxious to restore and rescue. I know this is scary stuff when you really get down to actually not just talking about it, trying to help somebody, but there ought to be spiritual operations going on in this church body. A lot of this will happen through go groups, through the men's and women's ministries, by the way, and through our youth group, I would say. Regardless of where the relationships get real enough for this to happen, there ought to be surgeries going on. That's not, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We need spiritual surgeries going on. Follow the steps Jesus teaches here, and hopefully you can eventually start helping others. Because remember this, accountability is the most potent attribute of community. Lastly, in verse 6 of the primary text, Jesus shares this admonition. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. So here's the warning in context. Understand that some people have inoperable sin. <laughs> inoperable spiritual cancer. Inoperable sin. This is so important. You can't make people hold still and submit to surgery on their sin. Neither can you ensure that the surgery is going to work. Sometimes you'll just get started and you'll realize this thing is inoperable. Particularly in our culture of division today, you must have wisdom to refrain. Jesus says, don't waste pearls. 
So let's slap this warning label right onto that verse in Ephesians that I mentioned earlier about exposing and rebuking. Or else you're going to learn the hard way. Did you know that pigs are seriously dangerous? If you've read Old Yeller, you know. In Palestine, where Jesus was teaching, pigs were mostly wild. They had horrible tusks and teeth. Occasionally, they actually killed people. I've heard that there are, there are still herds of dangerous wild pigs in Palestine today. Jesus says some people are like these pigs, which is an interesting judgment. <laughs> so they'll simply not receive your well-intentioned help. Instead, they'll turn and attack you. He says, when you realize that you're dealing with that kind of inoperable situation, drop your scalpel and run. Or else you'll do more harm than good. Listen carefully and remember, some people have inoperable sin. What I mean is that you can't help them right now. In these cases, you just need to pray and leave it to God. When he had the chance, Jesus refused to even talk to King Herod, who was an evil man. Paul would not argue with people who continue to resist or ignore the word of God. Jesus said, shake the dust off your sandals on the way out the door if someone rejects your message. There's a time to refrain from further efforts to help a person overcome sin. And while I'm mostly talking about judging sin uh, among believers in the sermon today, I think this especially applies to what we've said about exposing the sin of unbelievers. The surgery they need is salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And even there, some are far from ready to repent and believe. They're just not there yet. So you just might need to say, okay, this is inoperable for now. The point is that you need to be wise before attempting spiritual surgery. You need to assess the other person's heart as well as your own. There's a time to withdraw, and if you don't, more people are going to get hurt. And hurt bad. Jesus literally says that the pigs will tear you into pieces. Sometimes, sadly, there is just nothing you can do to help another person. <laughs> to judge or not to judge. It's a very complicated question, isn't it? But hopefully I've given you some guardrails today. We need to understand what Jesus taught and what he did not teach about judging. We cannot hide behind a universal anti-judging ban. The church must judge sin within and without. And yet, as we do that, we must tiptoe through a minefield of ways to mess it up royally. That's the truth of the matter. That's the mess of ministry. What Jesus said at this point in his sermon is not a little standalone saying that you can put on the wall in your living room. This is something to be grappled with and carefully thought through over and over again. In real life situations, the judging thing is extremely tricky. All you can do is try to understand what the whole counsel of God says about the issue and then prayerfully follow that guidance. I'll close with this. Ultimately, God is the judge. Amen? We, we mess up. He doesn't. Ultimately, God is the judge. And the real question is, what will this mean for you? It doesn't matter what I say about right and wrong, what my interpretation of Scripture is. I could be wrong. Ultimately, God is the judge. What will this mean for you? 
Would you ask yourself that question, even, even if you're a believer? If God is the judge, what will this mean for me? Doesn't matter what the preacher says or whoever else. The gospel message is Christ died on the cross to pay the price for all of our sin. And that if we will come to him in faith and receive his gift of grace, he will apply the power of that forgiveness, the cross, what Jesus did on the cross to you personally, individually. And you'll be saved and have eternal life with him. It's only because of what Jesus did. It's a gift. He's holding it out. So the thing about gifts is you have to receive them for them to be applied to you. We do that by faith. Ultimately, God is the judge. What does that mean for you? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it means you have nothing to fear. Would you pray with me? Father, Forgive us all the ways we mess up, including in judging wrongly at times, being condemning. Forgive us when we don't judge rightly, when we don't help each other, we, don't, we just avoid. Both ways, God, forgive us. But ultimately, ultimately right now, God, remind us that you are the judge with a capital J. And there is going to be a judgment and the number one thing that's going to be judged, that's going to make the difference between whether we receive reward or punishment, is whether we've received forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. Probably most of us in here have had that moment. And we've been baptized to, to make that statement that we have put our faith and trust in Jesus. But maybe others here today have never, ever done that. And as we could all tell with our own testimony, there was a point where we did. Maybe it's today for somebody. Maybe it's today. Just somebody would just internally just raise their hand and say, yes, uh, there's no telling how many things I've done wrong or how many ways I've thought wrong. So God, I just, I throw myself at your mercy and I just need Jesus to make up the difference. I just put all my chips in on him. I, I just need a savior. I'm just calling out, Jesus saved me today. I don't know. I don't know what else. I don't know what I think about so many things, but I'll just put my trust in Jesus for my eternity. Maybe there's somebody that today's the day. And I am telling you that if that's real, if that's true and it's happened in your heart, you will never be the same. And God will begin to change you and show you what's right and wrong. And you'll change some of your viewpoints and you'll change some of your behaviors. But that is all a process that happens after that moment when Jesus comes into your life. That moment of faith. So I hope you'll let us know that, that you made that decision today if you did. And God, for the rest of us, Lord, help us. We just were just in that journey of being sanctified and made more like Christ. Maybe today there's something new that we need to make a change. Maybe it's an attitude adjustment. I don't know. Just keep working our lives. Thank you for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, 
www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.